So I have a very active imagination, and our, our theme this month is imagination. So my, and people who know me know that I have an active imagination. Whenever somebody asks what could go wrong, <laughs> I can usually imagine at least 10 answers. David and Kelly in particular know about this gift of mine. I figure this kind of thinking had an evolutionary advantage among my ancestors. Imagining that you're going to run out of food during the winter or be cornered by a tiger can help you prepare and survive. My 20-year career in journalism reinforced this kind of imagination. Because really, a newspaper is mostly just a collection of answers to what could go wrong. <laughs> you don't even need to imagine problems. The real-world examples abound. You just need to imagine them happening, possibly to you. Balancing out my active imagination is a healthy understanding of probabilities. I can imagine an airplane falling out of the sky, but I know that the chances of that happening to me are infinitesimal. I'm less likely to die in an airplane than just about anywhere, so I'm a very relaxed flyer. What are the chances is a great question to ask, because the answer can actually reinforce an optimistic outlook. Knowing that something could happen and expecting that it will happen are two very different things. Awareness versus probability. Fortunately, my active imagination also produces all kinds of positive scenarios. A lot of intriguing ideas, intriguing to me anyway, ideas that often start off with what if or what could it be like. These imaginings are also tempered by probability. What if someone tidied my office every day and brought me a pumpkin pie? <laughs> this is not a very useful imagining. But what if FUS, but what if FUS had a mental health awareness team? That one became a reality. I'm still open to the pie one if anybody wants to take that on. Imagination can work best when people imagine together and build on each other's knowledge. I didn't imagine a mental health team out of thin air. I met some people from a congregation that already had one. And a bunch of dedicated members here made it a reality. And while it would be very natural for a terrestrial mammal like myself to be freaked out by flying in a steel tube seven miles above the Earth, <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Is it going to be okay? Do we need to do, we need to do anything? It'll be okay now. It's, li it's lying down now. And I was talking about gravity, too, so. <laughs> to be free, you know, it would be natural for me to be freaked out by flying, but other humans have done the math. Their knowledge is how I conclude that I will be fine. Even so, when we work together, things can still go awry when we imagine or when we don't. Groupthink can be dangerous and lend a feeling of credibility to imaginary threats. The idea that Americans should fear immigrants as criminals, for example, has had significant traction, despite all evidence. And I think many of us might remember the federal report that said the largest failure in preventing the 9-11 attacks was a failure of imagination. A collective failure to believe that such a thing could happen, that hatred could run so strong. We might say the same thing about the outcome of the last presidential election that there was a failure of imagination about what could happen, how, how authoritarianism could flare up and thrive. 
We are now living amid a new daily collection of things gone wrong with politics, with guns, with the environment. The hatred runs strong. And sometimes it can be hard to imagine how we'll get through. It can be tempting to tune out, to turn off our imaginations, to forget that there's such a thing as a good surprise amid the relentlessness of the bad ones. But good surprises do still happen, good things that we may have failed to imagine. One such thing happened just yesterday to me and to lots of other people and to actually maybe you. I never in my life imagined that I would ever watch any portion of a royal wedding. <laughs> the British monarchy exists because of atrocious colonialism and white supremacy, and I view it as largely an anachronistic distraction and a diversion of resources. But yesterday, my minister friends and other people on Facebook were all saying, whoa, check out the sermon from Prince Harry's wedding. So I did. I do weddings. I have, you know, things to learn. The preacher was the Reverend Michael Curry, an African-American who serves as the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the whole United States. Talk about speaking truth to power. Did anybody watch this? Yeah. yeah. He quoted Martin Luther King to what, until yesterday, was the world's whitest family. <laughs> he mentioned slavery to the descendants of slave traders. He mentioned sanctuary in the country of Brexit. He decried poverty in, some, in front of some of the richest people on earth. At a wedding. And he called on everyone to put their imaginations to use to reorder humanity's priorities. Here's some of what he had to say. Stop and imagine for a minute. Think and imagine. Think and imagine a world where love is the way. Imagine our homes and families where love is the way. Imagine our neighborhoods and communities where love is the way. Imagine governments and nations where love is the way. Imagine business and commerce when love is the way. Imagine this tired old world when love is the way. When love is the way, unselfish, unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive. When love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like, righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty would become history. When love is the way, the earth, will, the earth will be a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay our swords and shields down by the riverside to study war no more. Now, I have discovered that the discourse of many humanists tends to steer clear of the concept of love. Maybe it's because love is powerful but hard to fit in the boxes of science. Maybe it's because love can be a major disruptor of reason. Maybe it's because there are bumper stickers that say God is love, and some humanists don't want anyone to think they're talking about God. I even looked in the humanist manifestos. It's, love is not mentioned in the third one. It's mentioned in the first two. It disappeared by the third and became a more distant compassion. I'm poking gentle fun at my fellow humanists here for our aversion to certain words, but my point is that if we think about what Bishop Curry had to say, and we think of love as human flourishing, or compassion, or simply as human goodness, 
There is a lot to embrace in this world he asks us to imagine. Lofty? Yes. Idealistic? Yes. Impossible to fully achieve in our lifetime or many lifetimes, most likely. But lifting our ideals above the greed, hatred, and exclusion that are in ascendance and are taking over large areas of our world, lifting these ideals up reminds us that there are other ways, better ways, ways worth speaking up and fighting for. And that bishop provided a bold and groundbreaking example. What are the chances? What are the chances of writing the listing ship of humanity? Slim as they may seem, they're worse if we don't ask, what could it be like? And point our lives in the direction of the good, working to bring about the world we want to see. We owe it to ourselves, to our fellow human beings, and to our children to imagine and to try. I want to read a little bit from a poem, My God, It's Full of Stars, by Tracy K. Smith. We like to think of it as parallel to what we know, only bigger. One man against the authorities, or one man against a city of zombies. One man who is not, in fact, a man sent to understand the caravan of men now chasing him like red ants let loose down the pants of America. Man on the run, man with a ship to catch, a payload to drop, this message going out to all space, though maybe it's more like life below the sea, silent, buoyant, bizarrely benign, relics of an outmoded design. Some like to imagine a cosmic mother watching through a spray of stars, mouthing, yes, yes, as we toddle toward the light, biting her lip if we teeter at some ledge, longing to sweep us to her breast. She hopes for the best, while the father storms through adjacent rooms, ranting with the force of kingdom come, not caring any more what might snap in its jaw. Sometimes what I see is a library in a rural community. All the tall shelves in a big open room and the pencils in a cup at circulation gnawed by the whole population. The books have lived here all along, belonging for weeks at a time to one or another in a brief sequence of family names, speaking at night, mostly, to a face, to a pair of eyes, the most remarkable lies. Perhaps the great error is believing we're alone, that the others have come and gone, a momentary blip, when all along space might be chock full of traffic, bursting at the seams with energy we neither feel nor see, flush against us, living, dying, deciding, setting solid feet down on planets everywhere, bowing to the great stars that command, pitching stones at whatever are their moons. They live wondering if they are the only ones, knowing only the wish to know and the great black distances they flicker in. 
Maybe the dead know, their eyes widening at last, seeing the high beams of a million galaxies flick on at twilight, hearing the engines flare, the horns not letting up, the frenzy of being. I want to be one notch below bedlam, like a radio without a dial, wide open so everything flows in at once, and sealed tight so nothing escapes, not even time which should curl in on itself and loop around like smoke. A good poem about imagining other things, I think. Well, our annual meeting Sunday is upon us, and I want to stay focused today on a straightforward question. Why is First Unitarian Society here? Now, one answer is the news that we got from Gaza this past week, which has underlined a very old and troublesome fact. Bad theology kills people. As a humanist, uh, how do I define bad theology? Well, a theology that harms people, other living things, and the planet. It's really that simple-minded for me. I know it's a little bit circular, but as a rule of thumb, I think it works. Bad theology is bad because it harms. Our little formulation among humanists is people matter more than ideas. People matter more than ideas. And people matter more than theology as well. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Friedrich Nietzsche's paradoxical assertion that believing in something enough to kill for it removes human agency. Killing for freedom is not an act of freedom, Nietzsche claimed. Now, I know that's a radical and paradoxical notion, but it is worth thinking a little bit about. Nietzsche was no doubt a flawed human being, but he was looking presciently toward the world that we now inhabit. He had that vision thing going on. As I understand him, Nietzsche's preoccupation was how to take and have personal responsibility, how to claim ownership of your own actions, true personal responsibility, and that's a deep humanist concern. Nietzsche's inquiry concerns how we construct our lives in such a way as to take and have personal responsibility, not blaming our actions on government or the law or circumstances or God. How do we live and act in the world without weaseling out? Another of his ideas worth pondering in our time is this concept of what truth actually is. He wrote, and I should mention, maybe you've forgotten your eighth grade English class at the moment, um, metonymy, uh, the word metonymy means, uh, it's a figure of speech for like, the White House says, right? So the White House, actually the White House, it just pops and creaks a little bit. It doesn't say anything. Okay, that's a metonymy. But Nietzsche wrote this. What then is truth? A mobile army of metaphors and metonymies anthropomorphisms, in short, a sum of human relations which, poetically and rhetorically intensified, become transposed and adorned, and which, after long usage by people, seem fixed, 
canonical and binding on them. Truths are illusions which one has forgotten are illusions, worn-out metaphors which have become powerless to affect the senses. End quote. Truths are illusions which one has forgotten are illusions, worn-out metaphors which have become powerless to affect the senses. Nietzsche might have added that we people and the societies we invent also become powerless before these worn-out metaphors, metonymies, and anthropomorphisms. As a matter of fact, these calcified thoughts become our gods, our systems of oppression, and our justifications for law and order and murder. Particular gods giving particular bits of real estate to a particular people? Seriously? A pluralistic nation of hundreds of millions motivated to political action by loopy fundamentalist readings of old poetic scriptures. Seriously? The right to bear arms when the arms born demonstrably lead over and over to mass murder? Seriously? It all adds up to real bullets ripping real flesh, real lives lost over worn-out truisms. The work of people dedicated to thinking outside of the boxes and the prisons of the imagination is to see the illusions and the worn-out metaphors and imagine another kind of truth. That's our job. It's a tall order. But some people on our planet have to do it, and we are the ones. And that's a central reason why First Unitarian Society is here. The reading this morning, and the quote in your order of service at the top there, is by the contemporary African-American poet Tracy K. Smith. In the poem, she is doing nothing less than imagining a new way of perceiving the universe, a way outside of the metaphors and systems of oppression that have grown out of those worn-out metaphors. She is using her imagination. The etymology of imagination is straightforward. It comes straight out of Latin. Imago becomes the English word image. The Latin verb for to picture oneself is imaginato. It's basic human brain wiring described there. The Romans did it. The earliest humans did it. Many animals apparently do it. And it's the way we get through the world. We imagine pictures. But we mean more by the word than merely making up mental images. After all, we can, as last week's lay speaker Perrin Klump pointed out, picture a red flower in a pot. We can imagine that. No problem. The question is what we do with the images we create. Can we imagine the ten dimensions posited by string theory? How about the expanse? of cosmic time? How about a world in which people take responsibility for their own actions? Those are examples of picture-taking taken to a slightly higher level. Then there's the vision thing. We must envision. We must visualize a better world. 
As I mentioned a few Sundays back, wrapping up my fifth year here at the Society, we have been realizing that we've pretty well completed the tasks that the strategic plan set out about six years ago, about a year before I came. We have made those imaginings real. Now, we've got to admit that one problem with dreams, those images, is that once you achieve them, uh, well, they don't work out exactly like you thought they were. What, what, what were we thinking? What's a congregation for? Again, why are we here? What's it supposed to be doing in the world? My conviction is that it has something to do with thinking outside of those old dead metaphors and putting that into action. When we have our 137th annual meeting after assembly today, we will be thinking again, why are we here and what are we doing? The Articles of Incorporation, written back in 1881, remind us of why they thought we should be here, quote, to form an association where people without regard to theological differences may unite for mutual helpfulness in intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work without regard to theological differences, uniting for the purpose of mutual helpfulness to intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work. You know, the, the term social justice wasn't a thing back in 1881. If they were writing that today, I think they would say to form an association where people of whatever theological or philosophical position may unite for mutual support in intellectual, moral, and religious culture and to smash all systems of oppression or something like that. As I've said several times from this podium over the last five years, rationality ought to be assumed. We stand for reason, but we must move beyond that rather sterile stand to one of an embodied humanism, the love that Jim talked about a few moments ago. Here's what I want to be happening here on a Sunday morning, if you want to see my imagination of it. I want us to get here and somehow get out of all the lists and details of life and into a space where we are actually here together. What should we be doing here? We should be clarifying our values, our deepest moral commitments, by sharing and considering the many sides of any issue that's worth calling an issue. Again, we should be thinking things that can't be thought up on a Russian troll farm. We should be reimagining the metaphors. Then, having considered our grounding and our meaning and our purpose from many angles, we should leave here refreshed and driven by our values and our purposes to save the world. I think that's the basic formula for a good assembly. What stands in our way of that? Well, a couple of easies I'll mention. It's easy to sit around and admire our problems. All organizations do it. You sit around and admire your problems. Oh, that there, that is a big problem. Man, that is a huge problem. We have big problems. It's easy to admire your problems. 
How about admiring instead with gratitude what 137 years worth of showing up has done in our community? Right? Darwin is taught in the schools of Minneapolis because of this congregation, folks. And, we, and the list goes on and on. Another easy is this one that we need to remember as rational people. It's not hard to be the smartest person in a room, as long as you get to choose which room. <laughs> it's not a thing to pursue. What if we challenge ourselves to be the most compassionate person in the room, uh, the best listener in the room, the person who is going to learn the most from others in the room? How about that? Now, um, that's hard. And that's what First Unitarian Society is for. Our forebears said mutual helpfulness. Young, old, in between, single, partnered, it's complicated. Whatever, FUS is here for mutual helpfulness and to smash all systems of oppression.